Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Now, there's been many famous writers, poets, painters, playwrights, actors, film directors and musicians who've either had a mental illness, an addiction to alcohol or drugs, or sadly, taken their own life. Vincent van Gogh, Coleridge, Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, the list goes on. As a result, it's often been claimed there's a link between creativity and mental illness. The great science fiction writer Kurt Vonnegut said, you cannot be a good writer of serious fiction if you are not depressed. Some great thinkers and scientists have experienced mental illness. For example, John Nash, the mathematician who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, aka played by Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. On the other hand, there's plenty of plumbers, accountants and school teachers that experience mental illness too. It's just that we don't hear as much about them. So is there a link between creativity and mental illness. If there is, does that mean if you treat the mental illness, you lose some creativity? Ian, cards on the table. I am cynical about the connection between creativity and mental illness. I only know of anecdotal evidence, not studies that have found a higher rate in creative types. Has anyone ever compared rates of mental illness between, for example, writers and electricians? Yes. Oh, and what they find? Depends. <laughs> So, like all great science and like all great epidemiology, this is, testing and counting and trying to find out, it depends who you put in the positive group and it depends who you put in the control group as to the answer that you get. And, of course, there are many different types of mental illness. There isn't one generic category. So the two groups that have been most interesting to investigate have been psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, where people have altered perception, and certainly in families of people with schizophrenia, the way they organise thoughts and organise cognitions, not the illness itself, but ways of thinking tend to run in those families. And the others have really been in the mood disorders, but particularly bipolar disorder of great creativity and sensitivity, where this has been debated. And a very famous text by Kay Jamison, who's a professor of psychology who has bipolar disorder herself, tried to argue the case very positively that creativity was strongly associated with the illness or the likelihood of having that illness. Others have said, look, when you control for plumbers, electricians, everybody else, and there are many, many creative people who do not have a mental illness, that it's an association that, that great creative people who also have illnesses make use of their creativity in various ways and express it. And we're very grateful to many people who do actually express the experience of their mental illness and, and have creativity as well and then share that with us through painting, through art, through music, in many of those. In fact, most of what we understand and share in the world about these incredible experiences is often portrayed by creative people and to the great benefit of all of us. So I'm also of the, of the school of thought, James, that creativity itself isn't dependent and linked on mental illness. Uh, and then in fact, the issue that's really sad is that many creative people avoid active treatment because of the idea, the romantic idea of the tortured artist uh, I was reading just this morning, if you've seen the famous Norwegian painting by Edwin Munch of The Scream, you know, The Scream, he was encouraged to actually, you know, take the inner world, take the inner world of distress and express it and had a mental breakdown himself in midlife. What people often don't know is that he recovered and actually lived a very happy life subsequently. You know, you don't have to die for great art. And so I think one of the problems we've run into is, is some degree of romanticisation of that. But the issue of creativity 
and whether there are different ways of perceiving the world and that they may uh, be associated with some specific mental disorders or at least with the liability or the vulnerability run in the families of some people, not necessarily the illness itself, but having different cognitive and perceptual styles may be linked to thinking differently because the rest of us just think in boring, predictable ways all the time. You know, mm, we need right. people who think and feel differently and then to be able to express that. So to help us sort our way through these issues, we're joined by Neil Cole. Now, Neil works as a mental health consumer advocate. He's also an award-winning playwright who's written 16 plays, a novel, Colonel Surrey's Insanity, and a memoir, Stability in Mind. He also lives with bipolar disorder. Neil was formerly a Victorian Labor Member of Parliament from 1988 to 1999. It was right in the middle of that in 1993 when Neil was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Pleased to be here. Neil, do you think there's any link between your prodigious creative output, not 16 plays, as I initially said, 33 plays, in fact, and two books, and your bipolar disorder? Uh, it's undoubtedly, and there's a link between creativity and mental illness, apart from the Kay Jamison studies and books, which were brilliant, uh, Professor Nancy Andreasen did a 15-year study of writers at the Iowa Writing School. And the conclusion was that 40% of writers have some form of mood disorder. Uh, and the biggest group in amongst that, I thought, was poets. But it's it's very, very high with poets. Uh, and there's reasons, I believe, for that. But Ian can clarify them a bit better than me. So yeah, the answer is yes. But at, at a personal level, uh, one of the things that happens is you, you get this real exhilaration if you're about to write a play or you're, you're in writing a play, and that exhilaration I think is different from people who don't have a mental illness. I'm not saying they don't have it, but it's that exhilaration, one that makes you want to do it again, but also keeps you on the, on the job. Uh, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Well, where do you think that exhilaration comes from and, and how is it linked to mental illness? I always find these things hard, but I, mm. I think if it's the dopamine pathways, apparently, but some part of the brain which clicks in when you're doing something creative, in my case, writing. So, for example, I, I write plays and I've written, I've written 33, but in fact it's a couple more because I... The, they were co-partnered. Ian knows about them because I consulted him extensively and how upset I was. But uh, so this, but also I've written, you know, empty two short pieces, which we've done with our with playwriting groups and so on. Uh, so it's pretty strong within the brain. There's something that obviously takes place. Uh, certainly, when you're high as a kite, it does. Uh, but when you're stable, it's still there as well. Um, Ian, a lot there for you to uh, comment on. Thoughts? Yes, yeah, so I like Neil's comment there about it's there when he's unwell, but it's also there when he's well, an ongoing kind of base. The creativity isn't gone. So I think one of the kind of ideas here is often said, and often said, you have to be very unwell to be creative. But the creativity bit, you know, persists. The dopamine kind of idea, the activity bit is really interesting because – one of the really difficult things, and Neil can comment on this about bipolar disorder, is the being high bit has all its own challenges, but being depressed, being low and having no energy 
is in many ways a much bigger problem. And, and this issue of motor activation or this way the brain gets activated, which is probably the most characteristic feature of bipolar disorder, it's on-off nature of that activation. We all require energy and drive to do things on an ongoing kind of basis. What's so unusual about bipolar disorder is its on-off nature, the way it comes and goes in particular ways. But I really like Neil's comment about he's got creativity and you should see the plays. They are really funny. You know, they're really amusing in their commentary on, on ordinary human life as we see it. And that's creativity persists. And in fact, being well and being able to finish plays and be as productive as Neil's is, is not something that is taken away by mm. treating illness. Well, I wonder what you'd th- say about that, Neil. I, m- I mean, if you do see a link between that creative output and and bipolar disorder, does treating the bipolar disorder, particularly the highs, reduce the creativity? I, I, I didn't start writing... And until I went on to lithium, because that enhanced my, or I didn't even know I had the capacity for dialogue until that happened. And one of the reasons I never knew is because my mind was racing and I had the ideas, but you, you can't put them down. And you, you're so totally dysfunctional. You're dysfunctional with libido, with spending, uh, relations with people, losing your temper all the time. There's a whole range of, uh, emotions which aren't very good and they don't mean you you can't concentrate on writing a play now or or any other creative thing so i i've always encouraged people that you just because you're taking medication doesn't mean you're out of it you know and the the big study was done by morgan chow which is the first one i read on the topic uh he's the guy who create or work to create lithium but he, use of lithium and he's and what studies I read it was a third a third a third a third of people it improved their writing a third of people just remained the same and a third of people they lost it because they were uh, whether they're because on medication but also the high must be understood not just as a high but a series of extremely adverse symptoms and it's that adversity uh, which causes the problem for people who are trying to write. Can, look, just, just as one other point is there's, there's a, a whole era of things of, of um, people now, like Virginia Woolf took her own life. Um, she was depressed, but she was very creative. And she also died because they didn't have treatments for her then. And and now, if she had had a treatment, she would have been uh, really fine and would have been able to go on and do things. And the other one, of course, I, I've written about this in uh, you know, my, one of my few publications was in the psychiatric journal about Van Gogh. That in fact, if Van Gogh had a terrible bloody life, had he been uh, on lithium or treated, he wouldn't have had that life. He wouldn't have cut his ear off. You know, he would have been. But sure, his 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 production was great, but at an enormous price to him, including taking his own life. And that it's it's often seen as a trade off, isn't it, between uh, between creativity and treating mental illness. But from what Neil's saying, perhaps hopefully it isn't. Yeah, I think this is one of the societal myths I'd really like to bust, you know, 
that society needs artists to die young so the rest of us can benefit from their creativity. I'd prefer that, you know, artists lived a really, really long and productive life, like Picasso, just going on and on and on. More wives, more children, more painting, you know, best work later in life. There's another thing I think a great myth that artists necessarily do their best work only when they're young and then they have to die young. Whereas actually many get better and better and better as they go on. And actually we have lost, sadly, in the past, many great creative minds and creative contributions because people did die young from untreated illness. We don't have to do that anymore. And so this kind of myth, and and I deal myself a lot with members of the arts community, with that myth and that myth of also very heavy alcohol and drug use, very heavy risk-taking is seen as part of the kind of persona or the counterculture or the you know unique ecosystem of being an artist it's really dangerous and the the risk we run is losing people and also within that world medication and treatment often is highly stigmatized is highly rejected that inevitably you'll lose your creativity as neil said i really love neil's personal story you know getting treated resulted in being actually very productive not in creating the creativity but i mean maybe turning the creativity into actual products that the rest of us have greatly benefited benefited from. And Neil's unique capacity to capture dialogue and humour and take the piss out of the rest of us, we wouldn't have had that without successful treatment of that associated condition. Well, I wonder I wonder what you think about this, Neil, and, and, and how it might be relevant. I often think that one of the great myths of creativity is that inspiration is overemphasized and self-discipline is underemphasized. People always go, oh, where do you get your ideas from? And I had this amazing idea and I was whooshed away. Whereas really, particularly if you're a writer, most of us just sitting in the chair trying to resist the temptation of getting a biscuit from the cupboard and just continuing to sit there and plonk away and write crap and then try and make it better. Um, do you think if I wonder if you agree, and if so, that kind of suggests that these, you know, amazing, mystical, perhaps mental illness um, uh, inspired flights of fancy are, are overrated, and the more pedestrian, plodding self discipline is is underrated. Thoughts? I never know on this one. I, I, I you know, I put in a lot of hours because I enjoy it, and when I'm not doing it, I just turn off to it. Now I've learned how to do that, so. I hate to say it, but I think the inspiration is more important. I I, I I work very hard on my plays. I I don't take it for granted. I go, but I think there's a. I think it's the inspiration, really. And yeah, that, Des- describe that for me as much as you can. I know it's a well, hard thing it, to describe. No, no, it's not hard. It's it's. Uh, it sounds a little bit stupid sometimes, but for instance, there's a thing called associated thinking, not word association, which is what happened to me when I was speaking in this bloke just said what I was saying was word association. It's not. So associated thinking. Because associated thinking is so part, part of your way, well, so you, you think differently, right? Uh, one of them is like the other night I was watching a show and I thought it was really funny that the guy was saying that um, uh, was saying that the, um, that he was in prison and they went on a prison strike and they actually were healthier off the food than on it, you see. So it's just this, and you're sitting there thinking, isn't that so funny, you know, and so, or the other the other one was um, when I was in Parliament, not that they acknowledged my work there, but when I when I said, uh, 
they were worried about this marijuana. We were trying to make it legal, and they didn't know what to do. And I just said, look, just say we're going to have a joint sitting of parliament to consider it. <laughs> so that's what I mean by the exhilaration of being able to come up with really funny things or interesting parallels yeah. or ideas. And so I, 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 I'm really reluctant to say it, but I think we have to say that it's the inspiration that drives the hard work, not the other way around sort of thing. Mm. But mm. I don't want it to be seen that people with mental illnesses are therefore, you know, somehow better than everybody else and should, but there is an element of that that's with, within them, yeah. Yeah. So, Neil, if you take the creativity aspect of that, the one you raised about this is associative learning or what's been studied, and particularly studied in the families of people with schizophrenia and other major illnesses, is that actual capacity to see unusual associations. And the really interesting thing about that is it does run in families of people who have various sets of illnesses so that you can have that capacity without actually having the illness itself on an ongoing basis. And, of course, what most of us who are rather plotters or persistent don't have a lot of the time is that quirky way of seeing different sets of associations. Our brains follow very regular patterns. We see the same association over and over and over again. And James, you can comment on this, having done stand-up comedy. It's the capacity to see what other people aren't seeing, that joint sitting in Parliament being a classic example, a play on words or a play on concepts that the rest of us, even if we try really hard, aren't very funny or aren't very creative. You know, it takes... Some effort, but I think what you're describing is there's a craft to it as well. There's a skill to it that actually over time to to nurture that in a particular way over time. And and Neil has clearly done that, you know. Uh, Neil knows amongst my particular friends, many of them and, and professional academic colleagues who write a lot, believe they can write dialogue. They can't. <laughs> they just can't do it. So, you know, this, this our capacity to see the world differently and represent the world differently, see associations differently, that... I think there is a stronger uh, line of evidence that that's inherited in different ways and, and the brain's way of perceiving the world is different ways and, and to some degree that is overrepresented in people who also have a liability to certain kinds of illnesses. Perhaps one other connection is, and look, I agree with what you said, Ian, and, and if, you know, if I think back to all the stand-up comedians I've known, there's kind of a range from those who are just spontaneously great and can go on stage with maybe a concept or a an idea in their head and just create it on stage. And, and I guess they are a, a very spontaneous people who have a great sense of unleash the creativity. Others, more like myself, who <laughs> labour over a desk to get the – who see – you know, they get the start of a concept, right? I think there's something about something about supermarkets and then they labour and labour and labour and write three pages and come out of it with maybe three jokes if if they're lucky. Um, no, yeah. I was just going to say that um, I try, tried to work it out. I, I gave three speeches at a half hour each and never used the same joke and I did it. I, I was just, but I did it. And I, it was a bit difficult where you stand up talking and making jokes and you're not a stand-up comic, you know, but it's still a question of the not only is there a insightfulness and a inspiration, there's prolixity. 
that you you have a lot. So, for instance, I've written yeah thirty three plays, and I it's also taking the if I can say it's taking the banal and making it interesting or funny, not necessarily funny, but making it very very interesting. So people say, yeah, you know, that's that's true, or you know, or the other the other one. I did write a play one time, and there was a, a woman in it who was an electorate officer. So it was about the Labor Party things, and I had must be three or four women come up to me afterwards, believing that what I'd written about was somebody they know. Mm. And you say, oh, you know, not really. So, but the thing is, it's so true to life. I suppose is what we're we're talking about, and the the other the other issue is a contrast between schizophrenia and mood disorders on the creativity front. The people with schizophrenia, while there are some famous ones, as you said, Nash and and, but they tend not to be that good at it. And I had a project. Well, up until they defunded it this year. Uh, for 20 years I've worked with people with schizophrenia and people with schizophrenia just enjoyed the process. They don't come up with brilliant ideas or anything. I've had people with bipolar and depression and it's so much so we don't do it anymore with them because they tend to go off, you know, like one of them was started to compare himself to Larry Olivier. So he went grandiose, he went high. Another one was fine while the show was on and then dipped straight after. So the schizophrenia, that what I've discovered is it's not really strong creativity, but they love being involved in the process and they get a laugh out of it. I wrote all, all the scripts, but they get, a, they get a real laugh out of it and, and it improves them for that period of time. And, and whereas with bipolar, I... You, you, you run the risk that they'll go high and depressed, yeah. get depressed. Well, Ian, that kind of leads to kind of flipping. We've been discussing about whether, I guess, having a mental illness can lead to creativity. What about the other way? If you do have a mental illness, does engaging in some sort of creative work, and it doesn't have to be writing a song or a novel, it can be you know, cooking or even in the garden, is is that good, in inverted commas, therapy? So this has a long and rich tradition, of course, in uh, mental health treatments in many ways, long before we had the existing new treatments, pharmacological or psychological, things of art therapy, of music therapy, of engagement, of being productive, encouraging people actually to express themselves and what they what had happened to them or was experiencing in particular ways and to engage in that to to not avoid it not necessarily be afraid of it but to engage and actually try to use other things i mean uh, neil talked about his prolixity some of us aren't good with words you know some of people are much better with stuff that isn't words and is better painted it's better sung it's better performed than it is written so i think that kind of idea of trying to take very, what have often been very distressing experiences, very difficult experiences, and encouraging people to actually engage with those states to express that so that we who don't understand what's going on might better understand it, but also to, to find a way of being with it that they, that they have had. So yes, it has a long and rich tradition still in many situations I'm involved in encouraging people to find a way to express themselves through art, through music, through writing, or have strong traditions and therapeutic benefits. 
Yeah, and what would you say on that uh, for yourself, Neil? Did you find that starting to write plays helped you manage bipolar disorder? Oh, undoubtedly, very destructively so, because I I didn't want to be a member of parliament anymore. I wanted to uh, I wanted to write, and uh, it was sort of it's a damaging thing because you you're going where your passion is used to be politics, then it wasn't, then it was playwriting, and that hasn't abated. Can I put in one thing for you, though, that was very important? I had terrible problems with melancholia, and I got treated, but I wasn't properly treated, and then in 2002, changed my medication. And I I haven't had depression since. Like, you're talking about somebody who had it pretty badly, I haven't had depression since, and there's a sort of a a feeling I want to gain the time I lost when I was doing all these other things to be able to concentrate on working in the mental health field, and but and particularly writing. And there's a sense for people, a lot of people out there who are treated and are doing well, which you never hear about. Uh, they they've got time to make up like I do. And like everything's a bit bit positive and really joyful because I don't have melancholia. Yeah, well, that's a huge thing, isn't it, Ed? So this is really important. I think uh, in the public characterisation of bipolar disorder, people do talk about the highs and the manic behaviour and this excites the kind of world in particular ways. But most people who live with bipolar disorder, it's the depression that's a real killer. That's the lost years, the low energy and really distressing on an ongoing uh, basis. And I think... Neil makes an important point, and I think there's a continuous issue. Um, again, I, I, Neil's story is a good one in this sense. I see many men who've not been treated for years, and then there's a crisis in their life. And there's a kind of often a sad looking back, you know, if I'd got this sorted earlier, if I'd known what was going on, I wouldn't have had to go through many of these things and I wouldn't have lost periods. I mean, Neil writes himself about the onset of many of these sorts of problems as a teenager, but having no idea what that would be about or no idea of the causes or what might it foretell and then going and doing other things and then finding himself in very responsible positions like being a shadow attorney general, member of parliament, but, you know, not necessarily doing what he's wanting to do or the implications of that and and the societal response to it. So I think, you know, there is this additional kind of issue of years lost or time lost, particularly through the dysfunctional phases that inevitably accompany severe illness. Mm. Uh, Neil? Yeah, I, I, I just probably proselytising a bit too much, but I, I do think you look back and you think, my God, you know, what would have happened if I hadn't, like if I hadn't have gone into Parliament, for example, uh, how much better I would have been able to handle the illness. Uh, like, for example, my psychiatrist was one of many people who wanted me to lose pre-selection. Though her, her reasons were she didn't think I'd survive if I'd won and I stayed another term in Parliament. Now, that was her opinion and I take her opinion very seriously but uh, yeah I, I think that it's just that we we want to look at the glamour of the things and we don't look at it and the other thing I must say too is what Ian's talking about about people you know doing therapy and finding things what I've found with the writing course a uh, writing show we put on pl- put on a little play 
you know, in Footscray or wherever, we have 10 or 12 people with schizophrenia involved. And I have a ruling they're not allowed to write anything. We're not going to write anything about mental illness. And the reason is because it becomes self-indulgent almost and because it, does, it doesn't really lend itself to good theatre. But the main reason is I want them to be participating in a play which is of something normal. Now, these people are very sick with schizophrenia and so you're going to get some pretty outrageous stuff they write. So the point of the exercise is that we don't need to write about our illness. We need to write, be engaged in a process of creativity, sure, but not necessarily just writing about yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's part of a broader point, isn't it, Ian, of if you do have a mental illness, not letting it, you know, define you. Not everything has to be about it. Absolutely. I think that's a key point. And I think, you know, people say, you know, we don't say to people with cancer that you are cancer. You know, we don't say to people with diabetes, you are diabetes. But we tend to say to people, you know, you are schizophrenia, you are bipolar disorder. You are, we tend to make the person and the illness just synonymous with each other. Another really important aspect, I think, of, of Neil's work, and I particularly point people to Neil's book, uh, Colonel Surrey's insanity is the extent to which other people are always imposing explanations on the variations of the illness, even people who know you well. And that book, written uh, by Neil using the experiences of people with bipolar disorder, etc., I think makes a really key point that these illnesses, you know, are changing, and everyone else has an explanation for them, uh, their own narrative, their own interpretation. But you know how difficult it is to live with illnesses where the course of those illnesses is actually unpredictable. And there isn't always a ready explanation. Everyone else has got an explanation, but actually there isn't always a ready explanation. I wonder if you'd like to comment, Neil. Yeah, I, I, I don't quite understand the concept, but I, I think the other big issue here is, I, I've tested this myself, is when you go to people and you have an alternative way of looking at things. And I've had some amazing results. I, you know, it's just an exercise. So you, you're busy looking at, at other things, but the, to think of the loss and the waste of my life in anything other than a negative way is not easy, whether it's the marriage, whether it's relationships. You can pin most of it down on, on to, the, to the illness and... I suppose that's that's the way it should be, but it shouldn't be stigmatised either. And you shouldn't be saying, yeah, the high is a good thing, because a high is not a good thing. It's very unpleasant. Sure, you're full of high. You're full of energy. Um, I didn't quite understand what you were saying. Here. Could you repeat it? Because I haven't answered it. I should have. <laughs> should have answered it. Yeah. So, um, and this is where I really would recommend a lot of Neil's books and plays. But one of the things that Colonel Surrey central character says he moves out of mania and depression you know his psychiatrist his wife his family all has an explanation as to why his experiences in the war what has happened to him what's happening now and that's why he's depressed now or that's why he's manic now in a particular kind of way and he makes the comment himself i don't know why you know it actually there are elements of illnesses they come and go and this is in the pre-treatment kind of era, which is the point of Neil's book, what a, what a difference lithium has made to the lives of many people in these areas since. But I wonder if you could comment further about that. Me, yeah. Oh, look, it's hard. It's one of the other strange things. I don't know whether you suffer it or it happens to you, but 
once I've written the book, we sold 2,000 copies of the book. When you think about we did it by out of the print works at, at Footscray and, and just self-published and we did so well. But what was good was there was the, like what Ian's making the comments now, that you go looking for every possible cause of your illness and at the end of the day the cause is biological. But it's quite a logical thing to blame every every other thing. Like he'd been in the war, he killed people, and he, he's 150, he's, this is based on a true story, 150 of his troops died and he went around to all of the parents to visit them. So, you know, that, that thing's what, what Ian's saying is very good, but the, the book itself was, is, and I shouldn't say it was extremely good, but it was extremely good because we, we worked on people who had, they were Ian's patients and they all had um, in, uh, pain issues. So I don't know what the term is for it, but anyway, they all had chronic pain and I interviewed them all, including a woman who was a nun. And what we actually did was to bring all of those characters together in a book to explain something. Like, 2000 is not a lot, but it was very, very, you know, people all thought it was very, very good and they got a lot out of it. So, but I, I, I think that there's, uh, it's natural to start looking at reasons why you blame your parents, your grandparents, but at the end of the day, it's an illness and it, may, it usually is genetic. Discovering gen genetic has been the greatest thing that's ever happened for parents and others because they no longer get the blame for their children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, although, as one of my kids once said to me, if anything bad happens to me uh, or if I turn out bad, either way you look at it, it's your fault. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's either environment, i.e., the environment you gave me, or genetics, i.e., the genes you gave me. <laughs> So I don't know if parents can get off the hook, hook that that uh, easily. Good point out to her though, if she achieves a lot in her life, and it's my doing. Oh, I will be saying that. Don't I, you worry. I don't don't want that that side of the of the equation. Yeah, uh, Ian. Any final thoughts on this thought provoking discussion with Neil? It's one of the issues that people raise with me most all the time because people do read, people do go to museums, people do listen to music in particular kind of ways and, and they really appreciate the fact of how creative art in all its forms is so important to the society that we are and they do see their emotions, they do see their worlds, the things that we're talking about, they see them expressed in ways that a lot of talking doesn't actually necessarily convey, it's got true emotionality. But they also remark on how many lives have been lost prematurely in those great ways and 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 as, as i say and just on that we have focused on the classical artists we haven't even uh, looked at the i'm sure the highest incidence of uh, of casualties rock and roll yeah another great example in the in many of these areas so i think you know we want people to be in the creative industries we want people to contribute we want people to pursue these particular careers but if they have mental health problems, we also want them to live long and productive lives and find treatments that assist people to 
continue to contribute that great creativity to the human experience. Which is a, uh, a, a shorthand of, of which, Neil, is please write 33 more plays and uh, a few more books as well. Thanks so much for, for joining us and exploring that link between uh, generally mental illness and creativity and, and in particular your own bipolar disorder and how that uh, may or may not link to the creative, prodigious creative output you have. Uh, if you've got any questions or comments or want to get in touch, please send us an email at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's mindingyourmind numeral 2 at gmail.com. Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace. Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them or you can call Lifeline on 131114. Talk to you next time.